In today's shir, we will begin to discuss the age-old philosophical, philosophical problem of Sadik Viralo and Russia Vitovlo, of why sometimes the righteous seem to suffer and the wicked prosper. This philosophical problem is only a problem because of a previous assumption that we, and traditionally religious people in general, assume which is the doctrine of divine reward and punishment. If we believe that God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked, which in fact we do, then it becomes a difficult philosophical problem why the righteous should suffer, why should God create and perform evil for no reason if the righteous do not deserve it, And it is likewise philosophically difficult why the wicked prosper. Why doesn't Hashem punish the wicked as a cursory reading of the Torah would lead us to believe he intended to? This problem is indeed age-old. It is brought up in the Navi Yirmiyahu. It is basically the topic of the entire book of Eov. And according to Chazal, in Brachot, Davzayin of an Aleph, it goes back to the very beginnings of Judaism. Moshe Rabbeinu, Eth Har Sinai, asked Hashem, Mipnei ma yesh tzadik v'tovlo, v'yesh tzadik v'ralo, yesh rasha v'tovlo, v'yesh rasha v'ralo. Why do some tzadikim prosper, but yet some suffer, and some rishaim, some of the wicked suffer, but others prosper? The simple, perhaps simplistic answer to this question is that which is given by Eov's friends in the book of Eov. We don't have time to analyze the exact philosophical perspective of each of Eov's colleagues, and the Mepharshim differ widely in their interpretation of the precise philosophical orientation of each character in the book of Eov. But in general, the message which Eov's friends gave him was, if you suffer, Eov, it is because you deserve it. God is a righteous judge, and he would not have punished you if you were not, in fact, wicked. This simple answer is overly simplistic, and our moral intuition tells us that this is not true. There are people who suffer in the world and are not wicked enough to deserve it. And Eov is one of them. It's not only our moral intuition that tells us that Eov's friends are wrong, but Hashem himself, at the end of the book of Eov, appears to Eov out of the whirlwind, basically tells him he's not really going to understand the answer to this philosophical problem, But one thing Hashem makes very clear, that while Eov may have spoken properly about him, Eov's friends misunderstood the way that Hashem runs the world, and as a matter of fact, uh, Eov's friends need someone to intercede on their behalf so that Hashem would forgive them for their philosophical misspeech. Likewise, in Halacha, we learn in the fourth parak of Masechet Bav Metziah, 
that there is a biblical prohibition, an isur da'oraita called ona'atvarim, one is not allowed to verbally oppress one's fellow. And one of the examples of verbal oppression which is prohibited by this commandment is if someone had sufferings or, God forbid, their children died, to say, as Eo's friends did, it's your own fault for your wickedness. So, clearly, we do not endorse the simplistic approach of Eo's friends who hold that there is a direct correlation between one's lot in life and what one deserves based on one's moral, spiritual attainment. As a matter of fact, in reading the book of Eov, we, the reader, get a, the behind-the-scenes story, and we actually know why Eov suffered, even though he was righteous. Because the Satan challenged Hashem to make Eov suffer as a test. Of course, it doesn't seem terribly likely to us that that is the general philosophical answer. Do we think that the righteous suffer because the Satan and God regularly engage in such challenges? Satan has a bet with God every day. Although we are told why Eov suffers, the book of Eov obscures much more than it reveals. And we're left exceedingly unclear, as is Eov, about the question of why there seems to be so much injustice in the world if God is ultimately just. The, uh, there are a few approaches in normative Jewish philosophy to solving this problem, and I'd like to begin with one of them. One approach, a very popular approach, in fact, holds that Eo's friends were almost right. The Gemara in Brachot Davzai Namad Aleph quotes a machloket among the Tanaim, between it seems Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Yossi says, We know the answer Hashem gave Moshe and Harsinai. We know why sometimes the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. Tzadik v'tovlo, tzadik gomer. Tzadik v'ralo, tzadik she'eno gomor. Rasha v'tovlo, rasha she'eno gomor. Rasha v'ralo, rasha gomor. This first approach preserves the assumption that all punishment is a divine reaction to sin, all suffering is because of sin, and all prosperity is because of mitzvot, of good deeds. So how can there be righteous who suffer? A tzaddik gummer, someone who is completely righteous, who does not sin at all, could never suffer. But someone who is mostly righteous, but sins a bit, might suffer for those sins. Likewise, someone who is completely wicked could could never prosper. But someone who is mostly wicked, but still performs a few mitzvot, can prosper as a reward for those mitzvot he performs.
How does this make sense? Rashi and all of the commentators explain that in God's calculus, there are two realms, two worlds, in which he can apply reward and punishment. This world and the next world. And the way Hashem runs the world is as such. If someone is completely righteous, a tzaddik gomer, they don't need any punishment. So they have it good in this world and the next. But a tzaddik she'enu gomer, a mostly righteous person, deserves mostly reward but a little punishment. And Hashem decides that he'd rather give him the punishment in this world and save all the reward for the next world. He wants this mostly righteous person, tzaddik she'enu gomer, to have unmitigated bliss in Olam Haba in the next world. So he pays him back for all his sins in this world. And it seems like the Tzaddik suffers a lot because this world is so small compared to the next world. So even if he only deserves, say, 1% of punishment, he may suffer terribly in this world because even terrible sufferings in this world are only a tiny fraction or nothing compared to the eternity of the next world. So 1% might be a terrible, terrible life with all the sufferings in this world because Olam Haba is the other 99% right there. Likewise, when it comes to Rishaim, someone who's completely wicked, Hashem will punish in both worlds. But what about someone who is mostly wicked? Hashem doesn't want that person to receive any everlasting life in the next world. He wants to punish him in the next world without any reward. So he has to get rid of all the reward, reward, as it were. He has to fulfill his obligation to give him his, completely re- his complete reward in this world. The Therefore, the Russia, She'en Gamor, the mostly wicked person, might have a terrific life in this world. Because that tiny reward he deserves, if you look at it from the perspective of both worlds, translates into great rewards in this world, because that's tiny compared to the punishment he's going to receive in the world to come in Olam Haba. This approach is taken by uh, the Ramban as his, um, at least excluding his uh, uh, Kabbalistic approach, uh, the Ramban, he hints, hints strongly in Torah Hadam that Alpi Kabbalah, one can explain why the righteous suffer because they were wicked in the previous life, based on the doctrine of Gilgal, transmigration of souls. And why did the wicked prosper? Because perhaps that wicked person was righteous in a previous life. But the Ramban, as is his normal uh, derech, leaves Kabbalistic notions as a hint, but feels obligated to explain everything in the Torah on the basis of what we call nigleh, of regular revealed Judaism without having to resort to Kabbalah. And therefore, while the Ramban hints that if one accepts the doctrine of transmigration of souls, then you never know if someone was wicked or righteous in his previous lives, and therefore, it makes perfect... It, if you knew what he did in previous lives, perhaps it would make perfect sense what God does to him in this life. But, on the exoteric level, given the revealed non-secret doctrines of the Torah, the Ramban forcefully adopts this approach 
of Rabbi Yossi in Brachot of Zayinim and Aleph that all suffering is due to sins, albeit small, perhaps, and all prosperity is a reward for good deeds. The Meiri as well in many places in his commentary on the Gemara adopts this approach, and that probably seems to be the approach the Ramam adopts throughout most of the Mornevuchim, uh, such as uh, in the third book, in the 17th chapter, where he says, our opinion, the mainstream opinion of the sages of traditional Judaism, is that all punishments, all suffering, rather, are punishments for sins. The Ramam, of course, knows that sometimes people suffer disproportionately to the amount of their sins, and uh, seems to assume that someone who is not terribly wicked may suffer for his sins because he is Tzadik Sheinu Gomer, he is not completely righteous, therefore those few sins that he does warrant a small punishment, and even terrible suffering in this world is a small punishment compared to the next world. The, uh, the Ramban, very fascinatingly, in his book Torah Adam, which is about laws of life and death, he has one section of that book called Sharagmul about not halacha, but the philosophy of God's reward and punishment in the way he runs the world. The Ramban uses this idea polemically to defend Judaism against a very, very popular and powerful and threatening Christian attack that can be found throughout the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, the Christians would often try to convert Jews and would tell them, look, I will prove to you that Christianity is true and the Christians were really chosen and the Jews were rejected by God. After all, it says in the Torah that those who are good are rewarded by God and those who are bad are punished. And look, the Jews are oppressed, persecuted, enslaved, exiled, while the Christians are on top of the world, that proves that God has chosen us, the Christians, and rejected you, the Jews. Many Jews were threatened by the intellectual power of this argument and the fact that God seems to favor the Christian nations at the expense of the Jews. The Ramban turned this argument on its head and said, I will prove to you that the Jews are, in fact, the righteous chosen people. After all, no entire nation can be completely righteous or completely wicked. There always are a range, a variety of people. So nations as a whole can only be mostly wicked or mostly righteous, or I would assume in between. If so, the Ramban says, if you see, imagine, if a nation was mostly righteous, then Hashem would treat them as a tzaddik she'enu gomer. He would save all the reward for olam haba and punish them for their few sins in this world and they would suffer a lot. If a nation was mostly wicked, then Hashem would want them to go straight to damnation in the next world. But He has to pay them for their few good deeds. So He would reward them with great rewards in this world to get rid of the obligation created by their few good deeds so He could send them to eternal, complete damnation in the next world. If so, He says, this is the proof of the truth of Judaism. The Jews suffer because we must be so righteous we only do a few sins. So Hashem saves our reward for the next world and punishes us for the few sins in this world. The Christians prosper because they're a bunch of idolaters. They violate all the moral norms of the Torah. 
Therefore, Hashem treats them as mostly wicked and saves eternal damnation for them in the next world and punishes and rewards them for their acts of charity and kindness that they inevitably must do once in a while in this world by giving them domination and wealth and power, etc. This approach, while it would seem to be an adequate explanation, now we understand why the righteous sometimes suffer and the wicked prosper, and we preserve the plain reading of the Torah, which tells us that suffering comes because of sin, and prosperity comes because of righteousness, was not accepted by all of Chazal. In Brachot of Zayin and Aleph, Rabbi Meir rejects this approach and says this explanation was never given to Moshe Rabbeinu on Har Sinai. Likewise, in Shabbat Daf Nun Hei, Rabbi Ami initially believes that all suffering is a result of sin, and the Gemara, in the end, seems to reject him, and conclude, Yeshi No, not all suffering can be attributed to sin. It is not quite so simple. And likewise, we find this debated in Kiddushin, Daf Lamatet Amid Bet, and other places they mention a machloket between Rabbi Yaakov and the other Chachamim, where the other Chachamim seem to say, Schar Mitzvah Bahayim there is reward and punishment in this world. Rabbi Yaakov holds, there is no reward and punishment in this world. And according to Rashi and a number of other, perhaps probably a majority of the Mepharshim in Masechet Kiddushin, Rabbi Yaakov holds, there is no reward and punishment in this world, meaning not all suffering in this world can be attributed to punishment, not all prosperity in this world can be attributed to righteousness. There are other reasons besides reward and punishment, why Hashem might make someone suffer or prosper. This is perhaps also the intention of the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot Perk Dalad, where Rabbi Yanai says, Which most commentators understand to mean that we don't understand why the wicked prosper at times and the righteous suffer. Perhaps this explanation is not entirely adequate. It is an interesting question to ask ourselves why anyone would reject such an explanation. Well, seems to be a good explanation. Perhaps, just looking around the world, practically, morally, they just had trouble believing that the extreme suffering which some righteous people underwent was really due to their few sins. And philosophically, it's easy to say, we could have the most suffering we can imagine in the world. That's for one little sin. Because after all, even one little sin equals a lot of suffering in this world. Or, but, all this world is nothing compared to the next world, so don't worry about it. It's easy to say, but if one sees it happening, it's a little difficult to see an extremely righteous person. You know, take Rabbi Akiva and the suffering which the Romans inflicted upon him at the time of his death, or many other righteous people who suffered their whole lives, and to really believe that one or two small sins they did warrant such suffering. In addition, the Ran, in his uh, collection of Drashot, Drashot Haran, in the 10th chapter, questions whether it's really fair for Hashem to, as it were, be biased 
and give the tzaddikim extra reward in the next world by shuttling their punishment off to this world. Um, After all, he says, if the trade-off God is making is exactly even, then why would he make this trade-off? No one gains and no one loses. It's exactly even. And if it's not exactly even and the tzaddikim end up better, then God's not just anymore. So, there are various philosophical problems which one could have with this theory. Again, A, perhaps just hard to swallow that so much suffering could be the result of one little sin that a tzaddik she'enogamor did. And B, still a little perplexing philosophically. What they call in yeshiva's mimanafshach, either way. If, in fact, giving a tzaddik all his punishment in this world and reward in the next is better than splitting everything equally, then God's not being fair. He's being biased. And if it's all the same, then why does God bother to do it in the first place? Okay, nonetheless, we can accept this theory, but we have to keep our eyes open for the possibility of other theories. So moving on to possibility two, the Gemara tells us explicitly in Masech Brachot of Hegem and Aleph that the Gemara gives us practical advice. If a person sees that he is suffering, that God is visiting suffering is upon him, he should examine his actions and do tshuva and approve his actions. What if someone suffers and checks and finds that he's not doing anything wrong? Then it must be he's not learning enough Torah. He should learn more Torah. What if the person is not only not doing anything wrong, but is doing everything right? He's doing all the mitzvot he should and learning all the Torah he should what if there's nothing to blame this suffering on? So, the Gemara tells us, Rava says in Brachot Afheim and Aleph, that, they are sufferings of love. As the Pasuk says in his interpretation, he whom God loves, God chastises, meaning God punishes those whom he loves. The Gemara then continues and discusses how great a person is if he suffers as a result of the divine love for him and accepts those sufferings willingly and only loves God more and more when those sufferings befall him. Now this is a beautiful picture. A tzaddik who hasn't done anything wrong, who suffers just because God loves him so much and accepts those suffering, loves God even more. We can all admire such a personality. But philosophically we're still troubled. Why would God cause someone to suffer just because he loves him? It doesn't make any sense to us. If I love someone, I want to help them, not to hurt them. A human being who says when he loves people, he tries to hurt them, would be considered deranged. So why would Hashem Yitbarach punish the righteous just because he loves them? There are a number of commentaries or a number of Jewish philosophers, could not accept the simple meaning of this passage. The Rambam, when discussing the mainstream Jewish opinion in Mordevuchim, Chelek Gimel, Perik Yud Zayin, tells us that some of our sages believed in Yisurin Shalava, sufferings because of love, but that's an additional element of Sefetachach Lobab Mashiach Torah, which has no source in the Torah and is merely minority opinion. 
the Rambam is telling us that yes, there is one opinion Rava says in Brachot of Ham and Aleph that there's such thing as Yisur and Shalava, but we don't follow that opinion. That's a minority opinion. It's not mainstream Jewish thought. We can't really reconcile that with the philosophy of the Torah. The Ramban, a little, characteristically, a little less bold than the Rambam, instead of rejecting this Gemara, reinterprets it. The Ramban brilliantly reinterprets the Gemara by reading it very, very closely. What does the Gemara say? The Gemara doesn't say, if one hasn't sinned. The Gemara says, if someone suffers, check he should check his actions. If he didn't notice any sins, he should check for sins of omission. Maybe he didn't do mitzvahs well enough. Maybe he didn't learn enough Torah. And if he didn't notice any sins of omission, that doesn't prove that he is blameless, says the Ramban. That merely proves that he has committed no sin of which he is aware. In halachic language, we would say, that proves that he is innocent of he has not done anything wrong purposefully, but he still may have accidentally, negligently sinned. Perhaps he doesn't even realize that he is sinning because he negligently failed to investigate some aspect of his actions. Perhaps he is not keeping Shabbat properly because he's not an expert in the halachot of Shabbat. Perhaps he's missing out on the performance of some mitzvah because he made a mistake and doesn't know how to fulfill that mitzvah properly. Thurman tells us that someone who has examined all their actions and found nothing wrong must be doing something wrong. Bishogeg must be sinning accidentally. And therefore, Yusurin Shalava, the sufferings of love, do not mean that Hashem makes you suffer just out of love. That means that Hashem punishes a tzaddik not only for the sins committed intentionally, but even for unintentional sins, Hashem loves the tzaddik so much that he gives him the punishment even for his unintentional sins in this world, so that he will not have to punish him at all in the next world. But, says the Ramban, this Gemara does not contradict the assumption that all suffering is the result of sin, and as a matter of fact, anyone who suffers must be suffering because of some avirah that was committed, whether knowingly or unknowingly. So, the Ramban and the Rambam managed to defend the doctrine that God only visits suffering upon someone as a result of some sin committed, even in light of this interesting formulation, Yisurin Shalahava, found in the words of Rava, in Masechet Brachot, Daf Hei Amin Aleph. However, the majority of Mifarshim take this Gemara literally and understand that sometimes Hashem visits sufferings upon a person merely out of love. Sometimes suffering is in fact a reward, is in fact good for you and not bad for you. That is the meaning of Yisurin Shalahava suffering that is good for you and that is not in fact a punishment. Sometimes the righteous suffer because they're better off for having suffered. As a matter of fact, the Gemara tells us that Yisurin Shalahava are only she'en bahem bitul Torah or bitul tefillah. 
Yisurin Shalava refer to those kinds of sufferings which do not distract a person from his spiritual undertakings. Perhaps hinting to us that Yisurin Shalava are a type of suffering which is actually good for someone. Now, in what way would it be good for someone to suffer? Rashi suggests, somewhat cryptically, that that, after all, by suffering in this world and passing the test of accepting that suffering with love, the tzaddik amasses even more merit, or perhaps you could say credit in his heavenly bank account, and therefore gets an even greater reward in the world to come. So perhaps Hashem visits suffering upon the righteous so that they will deserve even more reward for passing the test of that suffering and continuing to increase in their religious devotion and spiritual pursuits, even in light of that suffering. Other philosophers suggest other reasons why it might be good for the tzaddik to suffer. The Pnei Yehoshua, in analyzing the words of Rashi, suggests, although this is an idea that uh, will sound perhaps vaguely Christological to us. We will not get into those implications at the present juncture. But Yeshua suggests that the suffering of the righteous in fact adheres to the credit of his entire generation and sometimes when God needs to punish an entire generation for wickedness, he punishes the righteous instead and the punishment of the righteous achieves kapara, atonement, for the entire Jewish community. This is in fact a favor to the tzaddik, because the zechot, the merit of having saved the entire Jewish community, is an unbelievably great mitzvah for which he will be rewarded in the world to come. Rav Sadigon in Sefer Emunot Vdeot suggests in a slightly different vein that in Emunot Vdeot, in the fifth chapter, that perhaps God brings suffering upon the tzaddik, even though the tzaddik does not deserve it, in order to show everyone else what a tzaddik is and what heights of spirituality can be achieved. If the tzaddik has a good life and served Hashem, then the rest of the world would say, okay, you know, it was worth it for him to be religious. It worked out well for him. But if the tzaddik suffers and remain steadfast in his belief and devotion nonetheless, then the entire world is impressed and sees the heights which a human being can achieve. This didactic function of the righteous suffering, of course, you'd assume the righteous would then get a reward for having achieved this significant attainment um, in educating the world, fits very well with the theme of the book of Eov. Why did Eov suffer? So that Hashem could show what a real tzaddik Eov was, that he remained religious even in the face of all that suffering. The, uh, so some of the explanations of why suffering could actually be good for you and not bad for you are either Rashi, just to give you the reward of passing the test, or perhaps to set an example for everyone else, or Pnei Yoshua, perhaps even to achieve atonement on behalf of the greater Jewish community. However, most Jewish philosophers understand this in a more straightforward way. The Iran in his uh, Drushos 
that we mentioned previously, and the Pnei Yoshua achieves this conclusion at the end of his discussion. The Maharal also reaches the similar conclusion, also mentioned the Sefer Ikarim in his discussion. Most philosophers follow the direction of the Ran and the Maharal and assume that suffering can be good for a tzaddik, and perhaps suffering wouldn't be good for you and me. We wouldn't know how to accept it properly. But for a real tzaddik, suffering is good because it diminishes his physicality. The more one suffers physically, the less stake one has in the physical world. And the more one is cleansed and spiritualized. There's a certain logic to this. Someone who has nothing physically will naturally lose his focus on the physical and focus on the spiritual instead. Someone who doesn't even have the pleasures of being free from pain, someone who doesn't have any pleasure out of this world in the physical realm, will naturally gravitate towards the pleasures of the soul. And his soul will perhaps be purified from its entire link to this pure physical world, and he can become purely spiritual by his retreat from the physical pleasures of this world. Of course, there's a delicate balance. Someone who suffers much might be lost in the physical suffering of this world. But the Ran tells the true tzaddik can use physical suffering as a way of distancing himself uh, from this physical world and focusing purely on his soul as if he had no body and therefore purifying his soul so that it can reach the most exalted heights possible in the ultimate reward of the next world. The uh, We've seen then, to summarize, two approaches to explain, at first to explain why the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper at times, and then to explain specifically why the uh, righteous suffer. If we count the friends of Eov, three approaches. One approach is the friends of Eov, who were committing an Isur de Oraita, violating the Torah prohibition, not to be emulated, which was that the more one prospers, the more righteous one is, and the more one suffers, the more wicked one must be in private. More sophisticated, acceptable formulations, we have found two. One, the Ramban and the Me'iri, and the Rambam and the Mora speaking in the name of the mainstream Jewish tradition, based on a number of sources that we mentioned in Chazal, that all prosperity is reward for mitzvah, all suffering is punishment for Avera. The only reason Sadiqim suffer is because they're not complete Sadiqim, and God wants to cleanse them of their few sins in this world. The only reason the right the wicked prosper is because they're not completely wicked, and God wants to reward them for all of their good deeds in this world, so that he can sock it to them in the next. The alternative formulation, which was the simple understanding of Rava's words in Brachot, sometimes a tzaddik suffers because it's really good for him. In what way is it really good for you to suffer? The uh, And there are some trivial ways, actually. The Sefer Yikar mentions a fellow who suffered by missing his plane and then the plane crashes. Okay, but even someone who authentically suffers, it might be good for you because perhaps it will increase your merit, as Rashi points out, by passing the test of accepting suffering with love. Or perhaps it is good for the tzaddik because it lets him help his generation, either by holding up an example for them as per Sadi Goen, 
or achieving atonement on their behalf as per the Pnei Yeshua, or the Ran and Maharal and a number of Mepharshim claim that physical suffering by definition is good for someone on a very high level of spirituality because it helps them purify their soul from physicality. And that is why a tzaddik may suffer sometimes, even not as a punishment for any sin, because sometimes what seems bad for you is really good for you, and in fact it is a reward to suffer and not a punishment. Again, to regular people, this sounds a little little harsh. We're not quite ready to, uh, you know, to have God reward us by visiting suffering upon us. Um, but perhaps those who are not regular people are capable of appreciating this seemingly paradoxical doctrine. But as Radashem, next week we will conclude our discussion of Tzadik Viralo by examining the sources in Chazal and Rishonim who take perhaps a more radical approach to why a tzaddik may suffer and are open to the suggestion that perhaps there is no divine reason why a tzaddik suffers and we can even go so far as to say it is not part of the divine plan. Sometimes it happens without any rhyme or reason. Is that true? Is that a viable theory within Jewish philosophy? Or is that rank heresy? We will return to answer that question next week. Be'ezrat Hashem.